Please bow with me in prayer. Lord, take my lips and speak through them. Take our minds and think through them. Take our hearts and set them on fire with love for your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. For those of you that may have missed the beginning of this sermon series on John's Gospel, I made the connection in John chapter 1, the introductory sermon, that John is very deliberate to connect Jesus and the Gospel to the Old Testament, and in particular, from the beginning. The book of Genesis, you have the first three words, in the beginning, and then in John's Gospel, in the beginning. And he establishes with Jesus that connection with God from the beginning. That Jesus was there. That Jesus was not only with God, that he was and is God. And he he was co-creator with God. Because you see the whole trinity in Genesis 1, 1 through 3. And Jesus is called by John in the first chapter, the Word. And the Word is the active person in creation who was the one to cause creation and then enters creation as God incarnate. We see in John 1:14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So you see this Word who is active in creation and then becomes flesh and then Throughout John's Gospel, this word then begins to do incredible miracles with his creation. Why? Because John wants to say not only is he part of the process of creation, he is Lord of creation. And he wants to make it clear. So... A few weeks ago, we talked about the wedding at Cana, his first sign, his first miracle, where he turned water to wine. Just to begin to show this reality of who Jesus is. And now we see this miracle of feeding of the 5,000. And in fact, not only is Jesus Lord of creation, But there's two miracles and only two miracles that are contained in all four Gospels that shows he's also Lord of salvation, Lord of redemption. He is Lord. When Scripture says he is Lord, he is Lord of creation, he is Lord of salvation and redemption. You know, there's a lot of miracles. When you hear the word miracle and you think of Jesus and you think of all the miracles that he did, there's only Two miracles that are shared by all four Gospels amongst the dozens of miracles that are recorded. One is the feeding of the 5,000. The other is the resurrection. The only two. So Jesus reveals by these two miracles connecting all four Gospels. He is Lord 
of creation. He is Lord of redemption. So when you read Paul, who writes in Philippians, that at the name of Jesus, that every knee in heaven and earth should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, that's what we're talking about. That he is Lord. And, and it's really, really interesting. When you think of God is, what do you think of? Now, when we say Jesus is, you probably think of several things. But when you think of God is, what word comes to your mind? God is love, right? A lot of people think God is love. And when you think God is, you might even think God is holy. But God is also life. Because Jesus is God, we say in John 14, 6, Jesus is the way, the truth, and life. And when you think of Jesus being Lord of creation and Lord of salvation and redemption, he is God of life in terms of our very being, our being created, and he's God of eternal life, life eternal. He is God of life. What a wonderful thing to think about when we think of Jesus Christ and who he is. And not only who he is, why he came and what he brings for us. And so when we think of Jesus as life, he creates life. He brings life eternal. And in this story of feeding the 5,000, it shows that he sustains life. That he wants to be our ongoing life, feeding us. And he does so miraculously. Now, some of you are thinking, maybe. Yeah, but did he really do this miracle? I mean, for those of you that are scientifically inclined, especially in today's age, People want to limit God. Did you ever notice that? Sometimes it's the yeah, but. Yeah, I believe God created everything. Yeah, but would he really do something like this? I know some of you were praying for miracles yesterday with your football teams. And some of it didn't happen. You know, what's interesting is um, I was talking to and texting with someone this week. And you have to remember, I wrote this sermon during the summer, at least in outline form. And it was regarding the Big Bang Theory. Not the TV show. And this guy was texting me because his daughter, who's in school here, was being told by her teacher, the Big Bang Theory is the only option. 
It's the only possibility. And she was feeling attacked. And he was saying, how could I help my daughter deal with this teacher? And one suggestion I gave him is, set up a debate with me. I'd love to take him on. But listen to what's being said. The Big Bang Theory is the only option. If the Big Bang Theory is the only option, it's not a theory anymore. It's a fact. Don't miss what's being said. But see, here's the problem. They've never done a scientific proof. Some of you have heard me say this. They've never done a scientific proof where organic life has come from inorganic matter. And the Big Bang Theory, by definition, everything that was at the beginning of the Big Bang was inorganic. So where did the organic life come from? You know what? It takes faith to believe that because there's never been a scientific proof that organic life has come from inorganic matter. That's a faith position. It's interesting. Let's take it a step further. There are steps along the evolutionary process that you have a real problem proving from one step to another. There are severe missing steps. Michael Behe's Darwin's Black Box is a great book to, to read about that. You know what? It takes faith to believe those incredible steps of evolution. Let's take it a step fur further. If you believe in Darwin's evolutionary process, one of the steps is survival of the fittest. Why are there still apes? If you came from an ape, help me understand that one. It takes faith to believe that. So I would say to this teacher, you are exercising a tremendous amount of faith to believe the position that you're standing on about the Big Bang Theory. And you think my belief in God creating everything is a position of faith? You've got a lot more problems than I do. And so if Jesus was the creator, why is it a stretch for people to believe that he would do miracles? See, I don't think it's a problem. See, now you might be struggling with, how did he do that? How did he take five loaves and two fish and then produce it for 5,000 people? I don't know. I don't really care. That's not my issue. I guarantee you that Philip, the one who said, hey, I don't know how we're going to buy enough food for all these people, but here's a little kid with five loaves and two fish. I guarantee you he didn't have a clue. But how is not the question. The why is the question. Why did Jesus do it? Out of compassion. Mark 6 says he looked at the crowds who were hungry and he had compassion on them. That's the key. Now, why doesn't God always provide the miracle we want or need? Because it wouldn't be a miracle if we always did. And we don't always understand the why. 
But we know why he does what he did. We know at the miracle wedding in Cana of Galilee, he felt badly for the couple. And he had compassion on them. And he had compassion on his mom who was asking him to do a favor. And here he had compassion on the crowd, so he fed the 5,000. That's what motivates him. God had compassion on us, which is why he sent his son in the first place. Because he's a God of compassion. He's a God who comes alongside us because he loves us. That's what the word compassion means. That's who God is. Now we can talk about this story with that in mind. You know, right at the very beginning, what we're told is these great crowds are gathering around Jesus. 5,000, the the other Gospels say 5,000 men, which means there might be more than just 5,000. And we're told it's because of the signs that he was doing. But it wasn't just the signs he was doing. Because he was gaining momentum. He had fame. He was teaching and he was preaching. And he was doing signs. The first sign being the miracle, the wedding in Cana of Galilee, which was near Capernaum in Cana. So the momentum is really happening in the region around the Sea of Galilee. So we're told by this point, from chapter 2 to chapter 6, not a long period of time, probably about a year, 5,000 people are now following him. Why? Why were they following him? Why did people seek Jesus out? There's actually a variety of reasons. And it's the same today why people go to church, why people talk about Jesus, why people seek and read about Jesus. It's the same today. Because some people are curious. Because some people are true seekers. Because some people just want what they want. They want their needs met. They want their bellies filled. They want the goodies out of whatever it is are going to be offered by Jesus or the church. And that comes out later in the story, by the way. When you read they wanted to make him king, why? You have to think about that. Because later on in the story, we're told many of them left because his teaching was too difficult. And some were following him to discredit him. There will always be people who want to challenge who Jesus is, what Scripture says, and what God calls us to. Because it doesn't feel good. It doesn't fit. It's not what I want to believe. Detractors. But Jesus was drawing this crowd because he was a miracle worker, because his teaching sounded really neat, especially compared to what they were hearing. Jesus was offering hope in a hopeless world, and people were being drawn to him. So he feeds the 5,000, and we're told he does it out of compassion. And people were questioning, is this possibly the Messiah? 
It's the same question that the woman at the well brought up that we talked about last week. That Jesus provides abundantly. As he said to the woman at the well last week, you'll never thirst again. And there was plenty of food left over after he fed them. And he says in John 10, I've come that you might have life and have it abundantly. That Jesus about, is about abundance. He wants to satisfy us. And unfortunately, what people often fix their minds on, Nicodemus in chapter 3 and the woman at the well in chapter 4, and now we're at John 6. People focus on the material and the physical, this world, and they miss what he offers, which is about our deepest desire, our deepest need, the spiritual truth behind it to satisfy us. That's what he wants. There's a void inside us that he wants to reach. He uses the physical to reach the spiritual. And we can miss it if we get stuck on this world. We get stuck on what we want, our own needs. And we can miss it. We get stuck if we get tempted by the junk food that's offered by this world. Because there's a lot of it. You know, it's interesting is if you think about John's gospel. And you think especially about the wedding at Cana and Jesus providing the wine. And you think especially about John chapter 6 and Jesus being the bread. You know, it's fascinating. Jesus never talks about communion like the other Gospels. He never does the institution of what we call the Last Supper. He never says in his Gospel, in the upper room, this is my body, this is my blood. He never says, do this in remembrance of me, like the other three Gospels. Do you ever think about that? You know what he does in the upper room? He washes feet and then he teaches. And he teaches especially about the Holy Spirit being filled with the Holy Spirit. Why is that? The reason is, is because he's already talked about what he's about. And John focuses on that. Because what's already happened... In the writing of the epistles and the writing of the gospel, you have to remember, John wrote about 90 A.D. The synoptic gospels were written in the 60s, and the epistle to the Corinthians was written late 40s, early 50s. They had already been practicing communion on the first day of the week for decades. He didn't need to focus on communion per se. What he needed to focus on was what people were missing That when he provides, he provides abundantly. Plenty of wine at the wedding at Cana. Plenty of bread when he fed the 5,000. And he also says, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. That what you really need to understand about why I come is an intimate relationship. That I become a part of you and you take me with you wherever you go. 
that I am your life. That's why I came. Don't miss it. And so many people misunderstand. That's why when people read the chapter, go home and read all of John 6. That's why when people heard him say, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood, I have to abide in you. You have to follow me. There's a cost to this. They said, well, this teaching's a little too difficult. It's not what we were bargaining for. We just wanted to make you king so you could feed us all the time. That's really a nice idea, but that's not what he was about. They were missing it. And sometimes we miss it. You know, one of the most frequent analogies to what this life is about is marriage. It's marriage. In the Old Testament and the New Testament, the book of Hosea in the Old Testament, it's a great analogy, the costliness of what God is about in his relationship to us. Jesus Christ talking about him being the bridegroom and us being the bride. And his laying down his life for us. And Paul also used the analogy of marriage. Over and over again, you see this analogy to a marriage and a wedding feast. But let's think about how a lot of people think about faith and draw the analogy to a marriage. How many people, when they say, yes, I want Jesus to be my Savior and I want Jesus to be my Lord. As if coming to the altar for a marriage... They do the wedding. They do the reception. Then they say to their spouse, hey, see you in a couple weeks. How would that work? Or if they say, I'll see you on Christmas and Easter. Or what do you mean? I have to be faithful all the time. Are you kidding? Really? This is exclusive? You mean you really want to talk to me every day and make our plans together every day? That's a marriage. It's commitment. It's planning your life around the other person. It's sharing life together. It's sharing life together in community, with family, with the broader community. That's a marriage. That's what Jesus desires for us. When we say, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength... It's total intimacy together. That's a marriage, but that's also our relationship with Christ. That's why the symbolism of taking in the bread and taking in the wine and that bread and wine become a total part of who we are. Infiltrates every aspect of who we are. That's what he wants to be in our lives. 
See, what the people wanted, they wanted the Savior. They wanted the King that would provide for this life. They wanted the goodies. But they didn't want a Lord. And He is Lord. He is Lord of creation. He is Lord of redemption. And He wants to be the Lord of our lives. He sends the Holy Spirit to fill us the symbolism of communion. To fill us and to satisfy us in our deepest need. We need a Savior, but we also need a Lord. Because in and of ourselves, we can't do this life. Not the way He intends. Not the way it's meant to be lived. If you're hungry, if you're thirsty, He has what you need. And it's more than you think. And He will satisfy you. Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never hunger. Whoever believes in me will never thirst. And there will come a time when every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But if you don't claim him now, it'll be too late then. Let's pray. Lord God, you came for the same reason you fed the 5,000. Out of compassion. And you poured out yourself for us. Which is why we have the symbolism of the bread and wine. The body broken, the blood poured out. So that we might have communion with you. And communion with one another. So that we might understand that you came to satisfy our deepest needs. Lord God, I pray this day that everyone here would understand the depth of your love. And the depth of our need. That you came to be our Savior, but also our Lord. And we need a Lord. Open our eyes that we might see. And our ears that we might hear and our hearts, that we might receive you as the bread of life. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.